the two witnesses. One of those witnesses we've learned is very definitely a guy by the name of Elijah. And you know what? One of the, the chief characteristics of his ministry, now we don't see this in Revelation chapter 11. We find this in, Revela or in Malachi chapter 4. And let, let me ask you to go back there for just a second. Malachi chapter 4. And I want you to look at what God says about this, this guy who's going to come during the tribulation period as one of his witnesses. He says in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, Behold, I, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now watch this. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Are you checking that out? Now, he, he's going to be doing some major stuff when he comes here as a witness. But what God's letting you know here is one of the things that he's going to come to this planet and do is, is he's going to be out there witnessing. And as he's witnessing, he's going to be preaching and he's going to be seeking to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And one of the most sobering things to me about our study of the book of Revelation has been the fact that through everything that we see in Scripture, we are living in the days just prior to all of these things that we're seeing in the book of Revelation unfold. The bulk of the book of Revelation is spent teaching us about a time of tribulation on this planet, a time of incredible judgment. A time that Jesus says there's never been a time like it before it, and there'll never be a time like it after it. Thirteen chapters out of the 22 chapters in the book of Revelation are spent just detailing all of the, that, that stuff. And, and the thing that just blows me out is that all of those things that we find that are going to be going on during the tribulation period are things that are going to befall the very people who are on this planet right now who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that hasn't sobered you up somewhere along the way in this study, then you're really missing the heart of everything that we're trying to do in this study. It's great to learn all of this stuff and be able to doctrinally nail all of these things, but we've got to stop to realize that based on everything the Scripture is teaching us, the people who are living on this planet right now who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm talking our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, the people we do business with, these are the people that are going to be having these awful things befall them during the tribulation period. And so what this is letting us know here in Malachi chapter 4 is that during the very time that you and I are living, this time right now, you know what the characteristic of this day is? Fathers need their hearts turned to their kids. You ever stop to think about this? Elijah is going to be preaching to the same group of people that we're preaching to on this planet right now. And what God says he needs to do is come to this planet and turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. You say, isn't that a natural I mean, is someone going to have to preach that? Yeah, it is natural. But you know one of the other characteristics of this day? What is it? They're without, what? Natural 
affection. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. We're living in a time where fathers have to have their hearts turned to their children. Children, to their fathers. You know what? It'll let you know why we do a lot of the things that we do around this ministry. You remember years ago, Frank was our youth pastor. And you know what? We began just seeing some things about the time we're living in. And that is, you know what? We can have the greatest youth activities in all the world. And when we can, we can make this place so exciting for our young people that, oh, they just love to be here. But you know what? We're incapable as a church to putting up a guy in front of them that be able to, to do what needs to be done in the hearts of those kids. We cannot raise your kids spiritually. That's something that God puts in to a father. And he gives the father that responsibility in that family. And so you know what we did? We yanked Frank out of the youth ministry and, and we started trying to put him in a position to where, along with me in the pulpit ministry of this church, we could direct this ministry to fathers and turning the hearts of fathers to their kids. And in our youth ministry, you know what we're trying to do? Turn the hearts of kids to their fathers. And if we'll do that, you know what? Their hearts will be with Jesus. So if you want to know how all of that related, it, it, it does relate because I'm telling you, Elijah's going to have to come and just, when we're out of here, pick up where we left off. Now, I hope he does just as good a job, too. Don't you, Frank? <laughs> yeah, all right. All right, now let's go back to, to Revelation chapter 11. And let's just, uh, let's, let's spend uh, uh, just a second getting back in the flow of where we are here. We've seen that the context in Revelation chapter 11 is very clearly the, the tribulation and very specifically the great tribulation, which is, Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 24, is the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period. So chapter 11 is dealing with that, that last half of the tribulation period. And what we found in our study of this book is John brings us four times through the tribulation period in the book of Revelation, and he does so using four different symbols or, or four different figures showing us the same tribulation period basically from, from four different vantage points. Now, we've, we've presently been going through the, the second of those four times. Go back to chapter 6 for just a second. And back in chapter 6, he brought us through the tribulation period for the first time through the figure of seven seals that were opened. And then we saw that after chapter 6, chapter 7 formed a parenthesis where John was showing us some other things that were taking place while those seven seals were being opened. Then we came to chapter 8. And in chapter 8, what he begins to do is he begins to take us through the tribulation period now for the second time. This time he brings us through the tribulation period through the figure of, of seven trumpets that are sounded by seven angels and they begin to sound in chapters 8 and 9 and by the time we got out of chapter 9 we found that six of the seven trumpets had already sounded and then we came to chapter 10 and in chapter 10 we hit another parenthesis and what John is doing here is he's explaining some things that were also going on during that period of time where the six trumpets were being sounded. Actually, the parenthesis that begins in chapter 10 and verse 1 
it goes all the way to chapter 11 and verse 14 and then you'll notice that the seventh trumpet doesn't sound until chapter 11 and verse 15 and when it does what we find there is the crowning of the Messiah what we find in in Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 is the second coming of Christ that event which concludes the tribulation period but before we see the crowning of the Messiah he showed us back in, ch in chapter 10 where the parentheses started the completion of the mystery and then we moved into chapter 11 where he has been showing us here the coming of the messengers so these of course are the the infamous two witnesses the coming of the witnesses and or the messengers and so we've there's so many things that are going on here in chapter 11 and so many things as we've talked so many times in the last several weeks about the fact that the things that we're seeing in this chapter are so key not only to your understanding the book of Revelation but really understanding the entire Bible and so we've purposely slowed down as we've been making our way through the coming of the messengers we saw first of all in verses 1 through 5 the warrant assigned the witnesses the warrant assigned the witnesses look, look in verse 3 you can see that the Lord Jesus Christ says in verse 3 he says and I will give power unto my two witnesses these men these men these messengers as it were they are assigned the task of being witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ and he gives them his power and his authority that is he warrants them for the assignment and we, we've seen the special place that is involved here in verse 2 the holy city it says the city of Jerusalem and that's specifically where these two witnesses will carry out their ministry we saw the specific period involved the end of verse 2 says that it's 42 months the end of verse 3 breaks that down for us into days 1260 days which is 42 months of 30 days which of course is three and a half years specifically again that last three and a half years of the tribulation period and then we saw the supernatural power involved in verse 5 while they minister if any man will hurt them verse 5 says fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies and if any man will hurt them he must in this manner be killed so that was the warrant assigned the witnesses they were to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ in the city of Jerusalem in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period being supernaturally protected from harm because of supernatural power that they possess and then we saw the weapons allotted the witnesses in verse 6 the weapons allotted the witnesses and this verse 6 along with verse 5 was what allowed us to actually see their identity verse 6 says that these witnesses whoever they are they possess the weapon of drought first of all they keep it from raining on the planet for three and a half solid years next they possess the weapon of death that is they have the power to turn water into blood and then they possess the weapon of disease and that is they have the power to smite the earth and the people of the earth with all kinds of, of plagues or diseases and it says there at the end of verse six and as often as they will I mean they can just dispense this power at will and we saw that when you put all of those things together and and you compare scripture with scripture that the two witnesses are without a doubt Moses 
in Elijah, and we won't go into all the proofs of all of that again, just suffice it to say or grab the tape from the last time. So, having seen the warrant assigned the witnesses and the weapons allotted the witnesses, now let's begin this morning looking at the war against the witnesses. The war against the witnesses. And this is in verses 7 through 10. I want to read them together. We're not going to be able to get through all of these verses this morning, but I want us to at least get them in our minds. It says in verse 7, And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer or allow their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. Now, folks, one of the things that you've got to understand is that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what time period you live in. If you ever fulfill God's will for your life and are used as a witness, you are going to find yourself with a war against you. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 teaches us that, that we're warring right now, not with a flesh and blood enemy, But we're warring at this very moment, we're warring with a spiritual enemy that includes principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. And now listen, those powers are bent on shutting you down as a witness. Anybody who's going to stand up as a witness is going to find themselves in a war. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 6, that's why he tells us to get our spiritual armor on and get all of it on. And he tells us to stand in the strength and in the power of the Lord's might. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, that we have spiritual weapons that we war with in this spiritual warfare. And those weapons, he says, are mighty through God. You know, we look at these witnesses here in Revelation and we think to ourselves, oh my goodness, man, they're, they're breathing out fire, they're throwing out all these things, and God says, listen, as my witnesses, you're in a different time period, but I want you to know you've got incredible weapons at your disposal, and those weapons are mighty through God. But folks, make sure that you got it. Make sure you understand. All of God's witnesses find themselves with a war against them. And what we find here is that in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, these two men stand up as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ, and they find that that same principle holds true with them. And they find themselves with a war against them. The only difference is the war that these two men are going to find themselves in will be a flesh and blood battle. And they'll find themselves going toe-to-toe with the devil himself incarnate in a human body in the person of the Antichrist. And that's what verse 7 is all about. Look at it again. 
And when they, the two witnesses, and when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them. And I want you to notice, first of all, and in fact, this will be the only point that we, we get to today. We'll, we'll finish the, the witnesses next week. But I want you to notice, first of all here, the person initiating this war, the person initiating this war. Verse 7, of course, says that it is the beast. Now, we've got people on all different kinds of levels of Bible understanding and, you know, people have been saved for two weeks and people have been saved for 20 years and all of that, but if you're familiar at all with the book of Revelation, you know that the beast is one of the main characters of this entire book. In fact, after this reference here, there are 35 other references in the book of Revelation to this, this beast. What we find here in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 7 is the very first time that the beast appears in the book of Revelation. And listen, we're going we're gonna to be talking about him again. He's one of the main characters of this book. We're going to see a whole lot about him in chapter 12 and 13 and, and 14. But now listen, if we're going to understand this passage and what's going on with these two witnesses in that last half of the tribulation... We're going to have to spend some time this morning talking about who or what this, this beast actually is. And, and what I want us to do this morning is just, just like what it tells us to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if we want to have the Word of God revealed to us, the Bible tells us that we are to compare Scripture with Scripture. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to go to all the places in the Word of God where it talks about this antichrist or this this beast and we're going to see if we can't form a composite of this this being and i want you to notice first of all that he is a man he is a man now that doesn't seem like it's a very significant thing to to identify but really it is because most of the people that you're going to pick up and read uh, as far as a commentary is concerned when you're going to talk about the beast most of the people are going to tell you that it is a kingdom or it's an empire now, that would be true if we're talking about the domain of the beast. But when you're talking specifically about the beast, you need to make sure that you understand it is a man. And you see that very clearly in Revelation chapter 13. Why don't you just cruise over there for a sec. Revelation chapter 13. And look at verse 18. Revelation 13:18. It says, Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of, here it is, the beast. For it is the number of, and watch this now, a man. Not it's the number of man, it's the number of a man. And his number, he tells us, is 603 score and 6. His number is 666. Six. So first of all, very simply, he is a man. But not only is he a man, but he's specifically that man of sin. That man of sin. And I want you to see this with me back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, in this, in this chapter, Paul's trying to straighten the Thessalonians out because what's gone on here is false teachers were, 
were trying to tell this group of people here in this new church in Thessalonica that they had missed the rapture and and they, they were living in the tribulation period. In fact, verse 2 even lets you know that the false teachers had even forged a letter in Paul and Silas and Timothy's name trying to tell these, these folks that. And, and, and the whole thing had just absolutely freaked these new believers there in Thessalonica out. It had, verse 2 says it had shaken their minds. It had troubled them. Mentally, they had been affected by this thing. Emotionally, they were a wreck because of, of, of this information that they thought that the Apostle Paul had, had sent to them. And so Paul writes to, to them, trying to straighten them out, and he says in verse 3, he says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. Now, make sure that you understand this. That day that he's talking about there is not a, ref, a reference to the rapture. It is a reference to the second coming of Christ. I want to make sure that everybody in this room understands that there are no prophecies that need to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church takes place. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, the rapture of the church is the event that we are anticipating at any moment on this planet. It is that time when the Bible says Jesus will come in the clouds, a trumpet will sound, all the dead in Christ, that is the bodies of believers who have been planted in the graves, those will come out first, be reunited with their soul and spirit that has already been with the Lord, and then all of us who are alive and remain on this planet, when that trumpet sounds, we will be caught up bodily right out of the midst of this planet to meet the Lord in the air. And the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And there is no prophecy in this book that has to be fulfilled before that event can take place on, on this planet. But he says as far as the second coming of Christ is concerned, the second coming of Christ is that event which takes place, se it takes place seven years after the rapture of the church. And he says here in, in verse 3 that that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And, and again, now this is in reference to the second coming of Christ and specifically what's going to be taking place during the tribulation period. But now listen, folks, the fact that we can already look around us and in every conceivable direction right now on this planet, we can see that there is an unprecedented falling away just goes to show you how close we are right now to seeing this event take place on this planet. But he says that there's something else that will have to take place before the second coming of Christ. He says that they shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed. Now notice that he is called that man of sin. Now listen, every person who has ever been conceived through a human father is a man of sin. You follow that? We're all a man of sin. Psalm 51 and verse 5 says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 20 says, For there is not a just man upon the earth, and doeth good, and sinneth not. So, we're all a man of sin, but notice this is not a man. 
This is that man, a very specific man, a specific man that verse 4 lets you know is the absolute antithesis of everything that Christ is. He is the actual embodiment of sin. In fact, turn back, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because I believe this, this title that we're looking at here in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, I believe that title, that man of sin, is in direct contrast to what is said of Christ here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, where Paul says, look at it, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, Paul says, for he... Okay, and, and the he there is the antecedent of God in verse, verse 20. For he, God, hath made him, okay, now that is Christ who you also see at the end of verse 20. Okay, so follow this. God made Christ sin for us who knew no sin. Christ knew no sin. That is, th this, this man, Christ, who had no earthly human father but was conceived of the Holy Ghost and born of a virgin he was absolutely and totally sinless but according to Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6 what God did is he picked up all of the sin of every person who would ever live on this planet and on the cross he put that on the Lord Jesus Christ and the scripture says right here in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he became sin for us. Absolute, perfect, sinless God in a human body who became sin for us. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So do you see how it works? He, he takes what is ours... And we take what is his. He takes our sin and he gives back to us his righteousness. You see, Christ is that man of righteousness. The Antichrist is that man of sin. Now, now listen, if you're here this morning and you've never come to Christ with your sin in exchange for his righteousness, then rather than you getting all caught up with the beast this morning and the number is 666 and all that man of sin and all that stuff, listen, the most important thing for you today is allowing verse 21 to become a reality in your life. Don't get caught up with all of this deep stuff that we're dealing with. Man, this is, this is the ABCs right here. If you're still in your sin, there's never come a place in your life where you came to Christ and there was a, a, a transaction that took place where you gave him your sin and in exchange he gave you his righteousness. If there's never come that day, that's what needs to happen in your life. And I, I want you to go back to, to where we were there in Second Thessalonians. I want you to understand something that is, is so very, very significant as far as where we are. Now I've talked about the fact that we are, from everything that we see in the Bible, we are that generation of people, those of us who know the Lord, that will be raptured. The generation of people on this planet who don't know the Lord are that group of people that will go through the tribulation period. And because of where we are on God's timeline, 
I want you to understand this morning that you will either receive that man of righteousness into your life or you will receive that man of sin. And that's spelled out for us right here in this passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You'll notice in the middle of verse, the middle of verse 10, it, it talks about those who prior to the rapture did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Do you see that at the end of verse 10? They didn't receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. In other words, he's talking about a group of people who had the opportunity, just like every person in this room is hearing right now. There's nobody in here that's going to be able to say, you know, I, I never had that opportunity to actually receive the truth. Now understand, there's lots of people that are in churches all over the world today that are never really going to have the opportunity to hear the pure, unadulterated truth that there's nothing that you can do to change your sinfulness. Jesus did all of that. He became sin so you could have his righteousness as a gift. You know, most people on this planet do not hear the truth. But what he's telling us here in verse 10 is those people who had the opportunity to hear about the wonderful truth of God's love for them and how as, as helpless sinners God loved us and became a man for the sole purpose of dying on a cross so that he could remove our sins so that we could have a relationship with him. And, and for those, he, he says here, that had the opportunity to hear that truth but didn't receive it, what verse 11 says, look at it, is that for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. And the context here is letting us know that it is the lie of this man of sin that we're talking about, the Antichrist. Now, what God is saying here is, he's, he's, he's saying, listen, you don't want my truth? then fine. But I'll give you exactly what you want. You don't want my truth? Then you want to what? You want to lie. And since you want to lie, I'll give you a lie. And the result is going to be, in verse 12, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth when they had the opportunity to receive it. Look at the last part. But had pleasure in unrighteousness. And folks, right there, you know what God does for us? He brings it to the bottom line of why people reject His truth. It's not because the truth is hard to believe. What He says is the reason that people reject it is because they're having too much stinking fun in unrighteousness. And they don't want Jesus interrupting their style. They don't want Jesus messing with their life. Oh, I've got too much living to do to become a Christian. Well, 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 buddy, let me just tell you, you better pack a whole lot of what you call living into your life in the next several years because I'm afraid that otherwise all that living is going to seem pretty insignificant when, as it says here, your soul is damned. For eternity. 
You see, and, and you know what, a lot of folks, this is not what they go to church to get, okay? And I, I understand that. If you're a guest with us today, man, I can't tell you how, how thrilled we are to have you with us, but I do want to make sure that you came to a place to where you understand that God brings this thing down to the bottom line, and basically what it comes down to, according to what we see in this passage, is you either receive Christ now and be saved for all eternity or receive the Antichrist in the next couple of years and be damned for all eternity. Oh, well, well, well no, no, I, I'll, you know what, I'll turn to Christ then. I mean, if I miss the rapture and that whole deal with, you know, y'all, you know, splitting out of here in a moment and twinkling an eye and that whole deal, if I miss the rapture, I'll get saved then. I'll call upon the name of the Lord then. God says in this passage, no. It does not work that way. What this passage is saying is that you're making right now your eternal decision about truth. You're being confronted with the truth of God's love. That He became sin for you who knew no sin, that you might become the righteousness of God in Him. And you're making a decision about truth right now and by rejecting God's truth and God, God says well uh, okay then, then you must want a lie and so verse 11 says that God himself will send you strong delusion it'll be so strong that the words that you're hearing from this preacher right now as he's reading right directly from the word of God there will come a day when those words will bear no significance to you whatsoever in fact you probably won't even remember this delusion will be so strong, and this Antichrist, you'll be so convinced he is the Messiah, you'll receive him. Now, folks, listen, I'm trying to tell you the truth. I'm not trying to freak your head out. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. I didn't invent this. This isn't my interpretation of it. Folks, it's right there. I mean, this is, this is what he says. So, again, before you get so caught up with, oh, my goodness, man, we're going to learn about this beast thing. Oh, my goodness. Understand this morning that there's something in your life a whole lot more significant than you understanding the timeline and all this stuff that's going to be shaken down. Boy, you, you better just make sure you've received the right Christ. And that all has to do with what's taking place right now while you're having the opportunity of receiving the truth. And so maybe for the rest of the service, maybe what you need to be doing right now is just contemplating. What am I going to do with this Christ and the message of his love that he died for me so that I don't have to pay for my sin? So think on that. Okay, so the beast is a man. And specifically, that man of sin. But look at something else at the end of verse 3, right, right here in 2 Thessalonians 2. And that is that this man is the son of perdition. He is the son of perdition. Now, folks, there's only one other place in the entire Bible where you find that phrase. And, and now listen, when God does stuff like that, you know what it is? It's a, it's a neon light. God's just saying, 
Don't miss this, y'all. Okay, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not real hard to figure that out. If there's only one other place in the Bible, and the way that the Spirit of God reveals the truth to us is by comparing Scripture with Scripture, then you know what? We're probably going to find a whole lot of things out if we'll just go to that other place, because that's how the Spirit's going to reveal it to us. And that place is found in John 17 and verse 12. And that phrase, the son of perdition, Jesus uses it here in reference to a particular man. And that man is none other than Judas. Judas Iscariot. Now, again, you, you don't want to miss little things like that, so may, let's make sure that we don't. Let's go back to John 17, if you haven't already. John 17. Now, the context of here, uh, the context in John 17 is... Jesus is praying for his disciples. What, what blesses me every time that I, I come into John 17 is, is verse 20, the, the fact that not only was Jesus praying for the 12 disciples, but all those who would believe on him because of their word, which would include everyone who would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in the entire church age, which includes me, which includes you. And check it out, man. You don't need Mary praying for you or some saint praying for you. Jesus has already prayed for you. And he pick, he, 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 he's going through his prayer. Let, let's pick up in verse 9. He says, I, I pray for them. Again, now that, that's us, y'all. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou, gave, thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep to thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition... You know why he was lost? Not because Jesus didn't have the ability to keep him. What does it say? That the scripture might be fulfilled. You see, now it's not like the whole gig with Judas was, you know, some big surprise to Jesus. You know, what he's saying is he knew the score on him all the time. In fact, the prophecy that he's talking about that needed to be fulfilled is found in Psalm 41 and verse 9. Again, in Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14, where it talks about the fact that Judas would betray him. And now listen, that had to happen in order to fulfill the Scripture. But Jesus clearly identifies Judas as the son of perdition. And so you start looking around to see why the Lord makes this connection between Judas and the Antichrist. And it runs you back to John chapter 7. Why don't you turn back there, John chapter 7. I'm sorry, make it chapter 6. And the Lord lets us know some very significant things about this connection between Judas and the Antichrist. And coincidentally enough, the context is, is set for us in John 6, 6, 6. It says in John 6, 6, 6, 
From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have I not chosen you twelve? And watch this now. And one of you is a devil. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. But I want you to notice how Jesus worded it at the end of verse 70. He said, and one of you is a devil. He didn't say, and, and one of you is, is like a devil. He, he didn't say, and, and one of you is evil. He didn't even say, and one of you is demon-possessed. He said, one of you is a devil. Okay, now turn over to John chapter 13. Let me show you something else. Now John 13 is where Jesus is up in the upper room eating the Last Supper with his, with his disciples. And you'll notice in verse 21... That during dinner, Jesus tells the boys that one of them is going to betray him. And so they're all wondering, you know, which one of them it is. And John's over there, you know, and the way that they would do it in those days, reclining as they were eating. And, and John's over there with his, with, his, with his head on Jesus' chest. And, and Peter is, you know, across the way there. And, and Peter looks over at John and says, Ask him who it is. John says, say, say what? Ask him who it is. So in verse, verse 25, John asks him, verse 26, Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I've dipped it. That's who it is. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And now watch verse 27. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Now, check this out, y'all. That's a statement right there that is not made of any other individual in the entire Bible. And if you think that any of this might just be, you know, coincidental in how it just appears to lay out, turn over just a, a few more pages to the next book of the Bible, the book of Acts, chapter 1. Now, obviously, by Acts chapter 1, Jesus already died, and he's been buried, and has risen from the grave. He ascends back to the Father in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. But something had happened to Judas after he betrayed the Lord, and he explains that in verse 18. He, he had committed suicide, and, and so in keeping with Psalm 109 in verse 8 that, that Peter makes reference to there in verse 20, the 11 disciples, they're, they're looking for someone to take Judas's place to complete the 12. Okay, so that's the context. But I want you to see is what, what Peter says in verse 25. Now, Matthias had been selected to replace Judas in the 12. That, that's who he's talking about at the beginning of verse 25 when he says that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship. Now, that's Matthias. But watch what he says about Judas now. From which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. Not that, 
that he might go to the place that he deserved to go. No, that he might go to his own place. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41? It says that hell is prepared for whom? For the devil and his angels. And you see, that's why, why Jesus... That's why Jesus used the same title for Judas as he uses for the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 because he's wanting us to be able to learn some, some things about the Antichrist by seeing them in Judas. So let me ask you, what have we learned? Well, along with the fact that he is a man, and specifically that man of sin, and the fact that he is the son of perdition, we also learn that he is a devil, right? One of you is a devil, and just as Jesus Christ was God incarnate, or God in a human body, we learn that the Antichrist, or the beast, will be Satan incarnate, or Satan in human flesh. And we also learn that the son of perdition has his own place. And though it's not on, the, on your study sheet, we also learned that, that Satan's first attempt at the Antichrist was through the body of this guy that we've been Iscariot. And check this out. Had Israel received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah, and had we not entered into this parenthesis that we're now living in that's called the church age, Judas would have no doubt been the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning that man of sin. You say, well, okay, we are living in that parenthesis, so what about now? Well, go back to Revelation chapter 11 and, and watch something else that it says here about the beast. Uh, this is bringing us back to the passage that we're dealing with this morning. Revelation chapter 11 and it says in verse 7 that this beast, okay, now we've already begun to see this composite of him. We, what we find here is that this beast ascendeth out of the bottomless pit. Now, now hang on that. The beast ascendeth out of the bottomless pit. Now, if you've been here for our study of the book of Revelation, you remember that we've seen this this bottomless pit before, haven't we? You remember that? Go back to Revelation chapter 9. And what we found as we were going through chapter 9 by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we found that at the center of this earth, the Bible says that there is a, a pit. And it is a pit that has no bottom. It is bottomless. In, in, in other words, in, in the center of the earth is, it is a huge hollowed out area that is a, a, a rolling, tumbling mass of molten rock and liquid fire, and as such, it would have sides, but no bottom, okay? And we, we went into all of the verses again, I mean, we're not going to go into the teaching of the bottomless pit again, uh, but this is why in Isaiah chapter 14, in verses 9 and 14, where God records for us the fall of Lucifer, what God says is, Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming, and thou shalt be brought down to hell, listen to it, to the sides of the pit. Uh, again, it is a pit 
that is at the center of the earth that has sides, but it has no bottom, okay? And you remember here in, in chapter 9, what we saw that during the tribulation period, that in verse 2, Jesus is going to unlock this bottomless pit. And when he does, there's going to come up out of this pit some of the, the scariest creatures that, that you could ever in a million years even imagine. But John describes these creatures as being demonic, scorpion, locust. And he, he says here in chapter 9 that they'll, they'll sting men during the tribulation period with a sting that is going to last for five solid months. It'll be a sting that is so excruciating that men will be seeking death. They'll be trying to commit suicide and will be unable to do it. But verse 11 says that these demonic scorpion locusts had a king over them and just take a wild stab at who it is. Look at what it says. He is the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. And both of those names mean the same thing. They both mean destroyer. And, and guess what? Now listen real carefully. That word just happens to be the same word that we were just looking at in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, where the word Apollyon there is translated for you, perdition. Perdition. Check this out now. The angel of the bottomless pit, who is the king of all of the demons there, he is... Apollyon. He is the son of what? Perdition. The bottomless pit is his own place. And he went there after he committed suicide. After he had betrayed our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And of course he is the man, Judas who was more than a man, we've seen. He is a devil and actually became Satan incarnate. He is the beast. And according to Revelation 11.7, go back there now, during the tribulation period, this beast is going to ascend out of the bottomless pit. And if you want to see how it's all actually going to come together, turn over to, to Revelation 13. Let me just give you a little sneak preview, because it may be another couple of weeks before we get here. But the context of Revelation 13 is very clearly the, the last three and a half years of tribulation. So by this point, now understand, now, now listen real carefully now. Okay, the context here is the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. So by this point... The Antichrist has been on the scene now for how long? Talk to me. Hello? Okay, now the context here in Revelation 13 is the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. So how long has the Antichrist been on the scene? Okay. Y'all knew that, didn't you? You just, you sing better than you, you talk. But the Antichrist has been on the scene now for three and a half years doing the peace gig. But watch what happens in verse 3. The Antichrist receives a deadly 
head wound. And he apparently dies, and he apparently resurrects. And it is actually at this point, three and a half years into the tribulation, that the beast ascends out of the bottomless pit. And Satan actually comes into the Antichrist and takes over. Satan is the dragon in verse 4 who comes into the body of this Antichrist and empowers him. And you know what? It's just like what we just saw with Judas. According to John 6, he was a devil all along. It's just that nobody knew it. But then in John 13, what happened? Satan actually entered into him and it became apparent who he was. Now listen, in the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to be just moving along. And he'll be a man. He'll be that man of sin. He'll be a king. He'll be a devil. The whole composite of everything that we, we, we've been building this morning. It's just for three and a half years, nobody knows who he is. Nobody understands. Nobody knows all that stuff. Then he, according to chapter 13 and verse 3, the dude gets shot in the head. And then, at that point, Satan actually comes into the body of the Antichrist and empowers him, and then he becomes Satan incarnate. Satan in human flesh. And that's when he goes into the temple, as it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, showing himself that he is God. And look at verse 5 right here. It says, And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. That's a strange coincidence, isn't it? Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, came to this planet, and he ministered on this planet for forty-two months. Satan incarnate, going to come into this person called the Antichrist, and he will minister on this planet for a period of 42 months. And now listen. As soon as he ascends out of the bottomless pit, and he comes into this one who gets shot in the head here, the Antichrist, as soon as he ascends out of the bottomless pit, he wages war against the two witnesses. Now go back to chapter 7, and let's try to finish this up this morning. Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. Okay, you got it now? Are you guys tracking with me? You understand all that? He ascends out of that bottomless pit. He comes into the person of the Antichrist. He is Satan in human flesh. Verse 7 says he, he wars against these two witnesses and ultimately, verse 7 says, he overcomes them and kills them. But I, I want you to notice a, a very key statement at the beginning of verse 7. It says, and when they, now this, this is talking about the two witnesses, and when they shall have finished their testimony." That's when the beast will be able to overcome them and kill them. And I want you to note it back in verse 3. 
look at it. I want you to notice there that our Lord not only had a specific assignment that he wanted Moses and Elijah to carry out, but verse 3 lets us know that there was a, a specific time frame that he had determined that he would use these men to give testimony as his witnesses. And, and I mean, before these guys had even gotten started, the Lord Jesus Christ had already calculated this thing down into how many actual days these guys would be on this planet and would prophesy. And our Lord says in verse 3 that it would be how many days? 1,260 days, which is the equivalent of 42 months, which is the equivalent of three and a half years. He says they're going to come to this planet and they're going to minister for 1,260 days, not one day more, not one day less. And I want you to check it out, folks. For 1,260 solid days. These guys have been out on the streets of Jerusalem. And I mean, they have just been busting the word, man. I mean, they're witnessing to everything that goes by to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming, as it talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. And they're out there and they're just busting it, man. Hey, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming and I want you to know something. When he comes, I mean, and fire comes out, you know. When he comes, you think that's something? Watch you. When he comes, he's coming in flaming fire. Taking vengeance on all them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will be removed from the glory of his presence and of his power. And what we find in this passage is that everybody who hears these guys is just going to be absolutely cheesed off at them. I mean, they can't stand them. The, the end of verse 10 says that the way that the people of the earth, what they feel like is that they're being tormented by these guys. See, that's because they're good preachers. And they're out there and they're, they're busting it, man. Some guy over here... He doesn't like what he's, he's hearing, so he goes over and picks up a, a rock and he reaches down to grab that thing. And Moses goes, Bye! And the guy's arm just withers back with leprosy. Here's some guy, and you know, Elijah's out there busting it, man. Some guy pulls out a machine gun and he just goes, <sighs> And the stinking machine gun just melts into a big useless pile of metal, man. And they're, they're going, hey man, if you think that's something, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because, And then they start quoting Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 12. And you need to listen to it, y'all. They start quoting this thing and they said, hey, if you think this power is something, you just wait till when Jesus comes back. Because the Bible says that when He comes back, the people's flesh will literally... And I quote, consume away while they stand upon their feet. The Bible says that a person's flesh, when he comes back in flaming fire to this planet, that while a person is standing on their feet, their flesh is going to melt right off of their body. And he says, and their eye, and I quote, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes and their tongue 
shall consume away in their mouth. You understand now why the world was feeling like they were being tormented by these guys? And I mean, they've just been out there giving it. I mean, they've just been preaching it to everything that moves. And for, for 1,260 days, that's the kind of stuff that's been going on. And, and for, check it out. For 1,260 days, they've been all up in the Antichrist face. Remember, he comes into his body, and how long is he on this planet? 42 months. You know how long these guys come to minister? 42 months. And 42 months, man, they've been out there in the Antichrist face. And they've been... There he is, y'all! This is the one we're talking about right here. This guy's a phony baloney. He is the Antichrist. He's from the bottomless pit. Come on, you guys. I mean, he, I mean, he's just, they're nailing his identity. They're nailing his destiny. And I mean, you got to remember now that these guys in their first go-round, you see, Moses and Elijah, they've already done this whole gig before. They've already been God's prophets. And they, they got them some practice because both Moses and Elijah carried out their ministries have you ever checked this out? Giving witness to a type of Antichrist. You remember Moses? He ministered and warred with a type of Antichrist that was called Pharaoh. Elijah, he witnessed and he warred with a type of Antichrist that was named Ahab. And you know what we find out? That whole deal in the Old Testament, all that was was just preparation. For the main event, because there was going to come a day when Jesus Christ was going to bring these guys back to the planet. And this time, he, he holds them together and he says, Hey, y'all, <laughs> you remember when you did that little gig with Ahab and Pharaoh? Okay, now, you, you did a fairly decent job there. But now, this is no type that we're dealing with. I want you to go down there, fellas, and bust the word in his face, would you? G get down there. And give them, give them the devil. That's what you want to give them. I want you to notice here that in verse 7, the main event has come to its 1,260th day. And as far as the Lord Jesus Christ was concerned, Moses and Elijah had finished their course they gave the witness God wanted them to give they said all that God wanted them to say they zapped everything that God wanted zapped and they had already won all that God knew it would be won and verse 7 says they had finished their testimony and I want you to notice y'all that it was then and only then that they could be stopped. They couldn't be stopped until they had finished their testimony. In other words, they couldn't be stopped until the Lord Jesus Christ said they could be stopped. And for 1,260 days, no power of hell. I mean, guys, 
The power of Satan himself is in this beast. And for 1,260 days, they've been in the dude's face. And Satan himself can't do Jack Ditley's to stop him. I mean, he just doesn't have the power. No power of hell or on earth could touch him for 1,260 solid days. No power of hell or of earth could come near him for 1,260 days. They lived with supernatural, God-given protection. And as such, they were invincible. They were indestructible. They were immortal. You say, oh my goodness. Man, those guys are blessed. And oh, they will be. But I want you to understand something. A lot of you have never quite really zeroed in on this thing. I mean, we look at Moses and Elijah and think, oh, man, oh man, oh man, would I love to, to be that kind of witness. How do you understand that the same exact thing that is true for these guys is true of you? If you're living, listen, if you're living your life according to the revealed will of God as a witness of, for Jesus Christ, you will not die until you have finished your testimony. Do you understand that? Job chapter 7 and verse 1 asked, Is there not an appointed time to man upon the earth? And I promise you folks, God knows exactly what it is that He's wanting you to accomplish on this earth as far as your testimony is concerned. And you are going to be alive to fulfill it until the day that it's done. And until then, no power of hell or of earth can do anything with you unless the Lord Jesus Christ Himself allows it or appoints it. And there'll never be any power of hell or of earth that'll ever take your life until the job that God has you on this planet to do has been fulfilled. You know what that ought to tell every single one of us? We ought to get our behinds out there like Moses and Elijah and get out there and be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ and not be intimidated. Well, you know what they might say. Who cares what they're going to say? If you're Moses and Elijah and you, you know, you're hiding in some corner somewhere because of what they might say, you're going to, you're going to, Moses and Elijah for crying out loud, you're the two witnesses. Get out there, man. You got supernatural power. I'm saying, we got it. And you ain't going to get, you, no one's going to do Jack Diddley to you. Until your testimony's done. So, man, what are we doing in here, y'all? Really, it's time that we shook ourselves and we said, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. We're living in the last days just like Moses and Elijah will. And though our, the weapons of our warfare, we're not breathing out fire, we're not throwing leprosy around and all kind of disease and Cool. We're not throwing out, you know, making the water blood. We're not doing all of that. Oh, but don't miss. The weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. He ain't got no power over you. We've got mighty weapons. We've got mighty armor. And he's not even asking you to go out there and battle in the thing. He just says, here, here's what I want you to do. Get my armor on 
and go out there and stand. And you'll, if you just get out there with that, those spiritual weapons that are mighty through God, and you'll just get that armor on, and you'll just stand as a witness, and not get your little self all... <laughs> Just get out there and stand, man! You're Moses and Elijah with the power of God. So stand out there. Be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you know Christ, this is what we're talking about on Wednesday, Wednesday nights right now. Being a witness in these last days. So we invite you to come. If you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, Let's go back to where we were a little earlier. You guys, God does bring it down to the bottom line. And I know that when you're sitting in a service like this and, and somebody's talking about all these things that are going to happen real soon, I understand that it can be a little bit like torment. But I want you to know that torment can be removed through a simple prayer of faith to where you say, I do know. I'm a sinner. And I know there's nothing whatsoever that I can do to remove that sin. I can't wash it away through the waters of baptism. I can't live a good enough life. I can't give enough money. I can't be good enough to my neighbor to do anything with that sin. So I'm coming to you as a poor, helpless sinner asking that the gift that you provided when you died on the cross would cover my sin. And you know what? When you'll make that invitation to Jesus Christ and just tell Him, I want you to take over. Let's do that exchange thing that you were showing earlier. I want you to take my sin and I want to take your righteousness and I want you to start living your life through me. You know what? Just like that. Your eternal destiny is secured in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that can happen for you today what's going to happen is we're going to dismiss here believe it or not in just a second and up on either side of, the, of this room our, our pastors are going to be there and we'd love to have you just come and just say you know I've got some questions or uh, you know what he was talking about this, this whole thing of an exchange that God wants to make with me you know he gets the raw end of the deal he gets my sin I get his righteous I, I, I'd like to know more about that if you're a lady here today these men will, will get a, a, a lady that can talk to you. If you're a man, we'll, we'll get a man that can talk to, to, to you. Oh, but for God's sake and for your sake, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you don't know that beyond any shadow of a doubt, before you leave here today, w would you just go and talk to one of these men? We'll get somebody that can talk to you today about your soul, about your eternal destiny. Let's pray. Now, Lord, I pray that you would work in the hearts of, of folks here today that don't know you as their Savior. And I pray that <clears throat> through the power of your Spirit even now, you would convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. I pray that you, Father, would draw people to yourself. And I pray that this would be the day of salvation for men and for women and for young people. 
And Lord, I, I pray through what we have seen through these two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, and the war that is against them and how you have equipped them to be able to stand in that day against all of the powers of evil. Oh God, may that motivate us. May it cause us to stand in the warfare that we find ourselves in. Help us not to be intimidated. Help us not to be scared. But help us to be the same kind of witnesses that all of us are expecting Moses and Elijah to be. Pray that you would use our lives for that even, even this week. In Jesus' name, amen.